Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they began trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you've whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will also be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you are brought before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Amen. Guys, let me just pray um, before Christoph comes in and speaks to us from, from God's word. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, folks, just have that passage open before you. As, as Sarah says, uh, these passages aren't, they're, they're not that easy. I, I found last week's uh, tricky enough and, and this week also has um, significant uh, questions, um, complexities. So keep it open before you and we'll see if together the Lord might help us just with this. 2017 marks the 500th anniversary of the, the Reformation or at least the moment in time that people uh, choose to, to mark as, as the catalyzing incident of the Reformation, that moment when Luther did or maybe didn't uh, nail 95 theses to the door of the church castle in Wittenberg in Germany. Luther, whatever we think of him, seems to have been a guy of extraordinary courage. He stood against the church of his time, uh, against a whole lot of other powerful institutions. Often he stood with little support, and occasionally he seemed to have uh, no support at all. What compelled him, or enabled him, to stand before council after council, court after court, without seemingly being swayed in his convictions. Well, it seems to me that Martin Luther had learned to live his life before an audience of one. His commitment to Jesus Christ, to his word, dwarfed all other convictions or concerns that he might have had. And these verses, which we've read today in Luke chapter 12, seem to have been important verses to Luther. Uh, We know that from reading uh, some of the the biographical material. We're in this middle part of Luke's gospel. We're on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus, the master teacher. Uh, We're his apprentices. 
learning from him how to live. And last week we looked at Jesus' teaching recorded in the closing verses of of chapter 11. We saw Jesus taking issue with the Pharisees uh, and the, the experts in the law, the leaders of Israel's people, the religious leaders of the day. He pointed to multiple areas, multiple ways in which they were failing. Well, here in chapter 12, I, I think in these opening verses anyway, he's, he's opening up to the possibility that, that the disciples might fail in the same ways. He's warning them that they could become like those leaders in chapter 11. He's calling them to live before an audience of one. I'll offer the following outline of our passage today, and uh, I hope it, it makes some sort of sense. I think, I think there are four things going on here. Jesus says, don't be hypocrites. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be silenced. And don't deny the spirit. So, verse 2, he warns his disciples, be in your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. A dictionary will tell you that hypocrisy, or a hypocrite, is a person who claims virtues, moral, religious, or otherwise, that they don't really have. It comes from the Greek word hypocrites, which talks about a stage actor, a person who is on stage acting a part, but it's different than who they really are. If you think about it, hypocrisy is a sort of functional atheism. It's a a way of living as if God doesn't exist. In the end, it's, it's folly because it means we've forgotten that one day everything that, that isn't seen, everything that's below the surface will be seen and will be brought into light. Everything that feels like it's private will one day be public. Everything that we whisper in corners uh, will be uh, broadcast on a megaphone. So, although it feels like we live our life before all the people who can see only a little bit, the truth is, ultimately and finally, we live the whole of our lives before the one who sees it all. Jesus says hypocrisy is like yeast. Um, yeast, as you know, is that raising agent that you use when you're baking bread. Because I know you do that all the time. Probably doing that yesterday, making a wee loaf. Um, but we know what it is, don't we? Um, and the, the, the point Jesus is making is, is how a small amount has a big impact. small amount of yeast raises a big loaf. small amount of hypocrisy pervades through a a whole life, possibly. Think about that for a second. What is it that happens whenever you discover that a a leader, whether it's a political leader at a bit of a distance, or, or even a proximate leader, somebody who's quite close to you, when you discover one thing about a part of their life that just doesn't seem right, it's not in keeping with what they present, with what they teach, doesn't it have this effect? It, it sort of undermines your confidence almost in the whole person. If he is saying that, but doing this, in that one area, 
can I trust him about that? Or can I trust her about that? Or the, the yeast of hypocrisy, it has this, this way of spreading and undermining our confidence in the whole person. Be on your guard, Jesus says to his disciples, about that kind of thing happening in your life. Those religious leaders who are hypocrites, if, if you become like them, then your leadership will be as ineffective as theirs. Remember to live with integrity. Remember that you live before an audience of one. As we learn to live before an audience of one, a wonderful thing actually happens. We're freed from our slavery, our fear of the opinions of men. We begin to care less what other people think of us, what judgments they pass, what evaluations they make. And we, we start in biblical language to fear God and not men. Look at what Jesus says, verses 3 and 4. I tell you the truth, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. It's quite extreme language, isn't it? About dying fear of someone who can kill you. And um, so a lot of chat about death and fear. Is Jesus saying that we should be constantly thinking about death and constantly fearing someone who's going to kill us? I don't think so. I think Jesus is making an argument from the ultimate here. So consider this. How much we care about a person's opinion of us or view of us depends in how much influence or power they have over us. So, imagine you meet a person who's a stranger to you. You're on holiday, say you're far from home in another country, and something bad happens. What odds? The person doesn't know you, they've no influence or power over you, they've... You, you shake it off and you move on. But if something happens that makes you look ridiculous or bad before the boss in work, someone who's right there, someone who does have a, a say in your, your future, who has power or control over you, that's a different thing altogether. I think Jesus is talking here, he's asking us to consider how much power do these people have over me? And he, he goes right to the extreme. He says, let's say a person had a power over you, even power to kill you. And that sounds like the ultimate power. Jesus says, no, it's not. There's a power beyond that. Even if somebody did have that kind of power over you, they're not the ultimate judge. Fear the one who after that who after your death still has the authority to determine your eternal destiny. Look to him. Fear my father, the eternal God. Jesus wants us to understand here, I think, that his father is the final arbiter of human life. He's the one whose opinion finally matters. Even with that interpretation, I think it's pretty intense. 
stuff, isn't it? It's wonderful how Jesus then encourages his apprentices to commit themselves to God. Look at verses 6 and 7. He tells them why it's safe to do so. Why this is good news. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? Indeed, the very hairs on your head are numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. In this world, Jesus says, with its millions and, I'm going to guess, billions of sparrows, or wee birds, or wildlife, flora and fauna, in this world, God knows all of that. How much more do you mean to him? A son or daughter created in his image. He knows you intimately. Right down to the number of hairs in your head. Now that's something I want to talk to Jesus about whenever we meet. Um, that, but that's... He, he knows us. He knows the details of our lives. He loves us. People who know this, who really believe it, can learn to walk through life with a, an uncommon confidence and ease. When I read these verses, I, I couldn't help but think uh, about something that Jurgen Klopp, my current favorite popular th theologian, uh, said last summer in an interview with Gary Lineker. He was talking about his faith. He was talking about why he doesn't understand how a Christian could ever be quiet about their faith in Jesus. And in the course of the conversation, he said this. When I look at my life, and I take time for that every day, then I feel that I'm in sensationally good hands. He loves us like he says he loves us. If he's counted the hairs on our head, if he's given his son for us, then maybe we really could start to care more about what he thinks of us than anyone else. Maybe we really could start to live before an audience of just one. Keep that uh, text open before you. We've seen so far that Jesus calls us not to be hypocrites, not to be afraid. And then he tells his disciples not to be silenced. And he sets the disciples a pretty high bar when it comes to speaking for him. Whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. But he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. These verses, uh, as I said at the outset, were 
very influential in the mind of Martin Luther. They emboldened him as he went head to head with the church and the authorities of his time. In a letter to his mentor Staupitz, he says this, This is not the time to cringe, but to cry aloud when our Lord Jesus Christ is damned, reviled, and blasphemed. If you exhort me to humility, I exhort you to pride. This matter is very serious. We see Christ suffer. If hitherto we ought to have been silent and humble, I ask you whether now, when the blessed Savior is mocked, we should not fight for him. My father, the danger is greater than many think. Now applies the word of the gospel. He who confesses me before men, him will I confess in the presence of my father. And he who denies me before men, him will I deny. How do you hear Jesus' words this morning? I find them extraordinarily challenging. What do you make of Luther and his historically attested courage? I find it inspiring on the one hand, but intimidating on the other. Tell me this. How successful have you been at acknowledging Jesus Christ before men? I have a patchy record, to say the least. Whenever I think about this subject, my mind always flies back to being an 11-year-old boy in a classroom in Regent House School in Newtonards, first form, probably just a few months at the school. History lesson, and somehow the subject of Christianity comes up, and the teacher very abruptly in the middle of the lesson says, Christianity, anybody believe that stuff? Any Christians here? Probably not a very appropriate uh, approach for the teacher to be taking. I instantly felt the reflex of my hand starting to move up, because I thought, yeah, that's me. I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus Christ. And while my hand was going up, I was quickly scanning the room to see if there were any other hands going up. And there weren't many. And the two, I think I remember, I thought, goodness, don't know if I want to be in that team. So my hand didn't make it past the desk. I went home as a, an 11-year-old boy Wishing I'd had the courage to acknowledge Jesus Christ, but, but not quite able to. It wasn't the last time in my life that I uh, didn't acknowledge Jesus. That's the good thing about choosing something from 30-something years ago. It makes me look like I've been acknowledging Jesus faithfully ever since. I don't know how many times I've said nothing or said less than I would have liked in, in defense of or just in, in support of Jesus. 
So our passage raises interesting questions for people like me, maybe like you too. What do I do with verse 9? He who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels in heaven. Is it over between Jesus and me? Is my eternal salvation in jeopardy? I don't think we need to jump to that conclusion. Think for a second about Peter. If the Bible has a pinup boy for failing to acknowledge Jesus, Peter is it. Luke tells us about it, chapter 22 of his gospel, the night of Jesus' arrest. Jesus has been lifted in the garden. He's been brought to the high priest's house. The other disciples have already scarpered. Peter's somehow still there among the waiting crowd, and they're warming themselves by a fire while Jesus is on trial. A woman says to Peter that she's seen him with Jesus. Woman, I don't know him. Someone else says, you're one of them. Man, I I am not. Someone else says, Peter must be one of them. uh, And makes the connection, points out that Jesus too is a Galilean. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Peter disowns Jesus about as clearly and unambiguously and emphatically as it's possible to do. What a... Jesus do with Peter? Did he disown him? No chance. He restored him. After Jesus' death, following the resurrection, Jesus met up with Peter on the shores of Lake Galilee, right back where it had all begun three years earlier. You can read about it in John 21. Do you know what Jesus says to him? Some of you will know this text. And if you're like me, you'll you'll remember the bits about, do you love me? Jesus asked him, do you love him? Do you love me? And he says, yes. And Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. And he he repeats some of this stuff. Uh, Peter's reinstating Jesus. Or or sorry, Jesus is reinstating Peter. But there's just a beautiful thing. He gives him the same invitation that he'd given him three years before. The same invitation that had sounded so exciting three years earlier on the shores of the lake. The same invitation that Peter thought had been revoked now after his dysfunctional discipleship, after his failing Jesus, his great denial, with years of failure behind him, with more broken dreams than he could ever have imagined Jesus looks at this big broken fisherman and he says come on what's keeping you come on follow me the first words he'd ever said to him follow me you're still part of the team now let's go and Boy, does he go. Um, I've been reading, uh, along with many others of you, we've been reading this community Bible experiment, we call it. We've been reading the early chapters of Acts. I never realized what a brilliant preacher 
Peter is. God uses him to turn the world upside down. This guy who'd been disowning Jesus becomes the guy who preaches the sermon. He says, I don't know him. I'm not with him. I don't know what you're talking about. And yet he preaches this sermon where 3,000 people turn their lives to Jesus in one day. Here's what he says about Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. A few weeks before, he's saying, I don't know him. Never heard of him. Don't know that name. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus turns him around. And as an older guy, Peter can testify to those last verses of our passage, verses 11 and 12. He did find that when he was dragged before the courts, the religious authorities, that the Holy Spirit did give him words to say. We're almost done. But I don't want to miss the verse in this passage which might raise more questions than all others. I think I remember this coming up in question nights. In the old days, in the 80s, when I was growing up, part of youth work was question night where you were able to ask the leaders your hard questions. And this, some of the theologically minded guys would ask this, you know, what is the, the sin against the Holy Spirit that cannot be forgiven? Look at, look at what Jesus says. Verse 10, everyone who speaks a word against me, the Son of Man, will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit won't be forgiven. What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? What, what, how can I be sure that I'm not doing it? Well, here's, here's a thing that we maybe need to to pay attention to. There are certain things which even God finds impossible. It's impossible, for example, for God to lie or to deny himself or to contradict himself. If we take that, that certain things are impossible, then if a person doesn't want to be forgiven, doesn't want to have their relationship with God restored, then it's impossible for God to to force that and to restore that relationship, to impose forgiveness on them. So in his commentary on Luke's gospel, Michael Wilcox says this, It's impossible, therefore, for God to forgive one who says, I will not listen to the Spirit when he brings me the message of forgiveness. It's impossible for God to save one who says, I won't allow the Spirit to point me to the Savior. It's impossible for him to transform one who says, I will not have the Spirit transforming me. This is the ultimate blasphemy. And against this, even God can do nothing. The man who is determined to go to hell will certainly get there. Folks, do you see what it might mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And do you see why it's the unforgivable sin? The Spirit's the one who comes to us and who offers us salvation in Jesus Christ. When he does that, I dare not refuse him. 
when he comes to offer me forgiveness and transformation, I dare not turn down his offer. To, to do that, to reject the Spirit, is to reject all of the life of God made available to us. If I do that, there's nothing that God can or will do about it. In that sermon that I just talked about, Peter at Pentecost, he says a powerful thing. He says, repent and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Stop turning away from God and receive everything that he wants to give you by his Spirit. Forgiveness, salvation, transformation. Receive it all in the Spirit. Folks, I'm going to guess in a crowd of this size that it's possible that some of us are still denying God's Spirit. Is today the day when that needs to change? Change. 